0: WARDCAST EPISODE 101, GO! I'm Dylan Alvento, and I am joined today by Mike Footer, author of the Game Dev Business Handbook and former news editor
1: of Game Informer. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Did I get all that right? You got it all right. The name, the name of the book. Uh, my dogs are barking in the background. and hopefully, <laughs> you can't hear them. Uh, my former job at Game Informer. Yes. All cool, it's cool. right.
0: Awesome. Because uh, what messes me up about the book title
1: is that the, the URL of the book is different than the book title. There's actually a story behind that. So we were we were actually considering calling it just the Game Dev Biz book. Okay. Um, we really like the way that rolled off the tongue. Um, but there were there were some considerations there were some conversations that we had it's like uh the word we we had some discussion about biz versus business and um and if we went with the longer word then maybe we needed needed something other than book so there were some really cool conversations about it but we really liked that for the URL um because it really rolls off the tongue it's easy enough to remember so we stuck with it for the URL so URL registered first and then, no, actually, we no, the URL was registered after we, um, we just decided that we wanted to stick with it. Oh, cool. We were really happy with the way it sounded. Um, and it's easy enough to remember if somebody really wants to remember, like, oh, what's that website again? That's right, gamedevbizbook.com.
0: I just, I just pressed G on my address bar and it just fills in the rest because oh, I've, see, that makes me happy. <laughs> I've gone to the site enough times. Uh, well, sorry, sorry, say, Game Informer. But...
1: <laughs> um, and by the time this actually goes out, um, we will have some additional things on there, giving people a reason that they might want to come back. Sweet. Awesome. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's also
0: difficult being that like biz dev is also a term I throw around a lot. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, the website's called the biz dev game guide hand book. Uh,
1: yes. Game dev and biz dev and yeah, biz dev is a thing that we talk about. And I talk to a lot of people who work in biz dev in, you know, for the book. So I I, I understand.
0: Yeah. Uh so yeah, do you want to give a brief kind of summary of the of the book first for people that aren't in the know?
1: Sure, absolutely. Uh the Game Dev Business Handbook is uh something we hope will be of use to students and developers just starting out. It's intended to be a guide to starting a business and then maintaining a business over the long term. Our intent is that this is something you'll want to keep on your desk or on your bookshelf or under digital device because we're selling it digitally and we're selling it um, in hardcover um, we want people to be able to use it as a reference it's not a get rich quick book and you might have seen that on the website as well it's something that we believe is fundamental we had we had conversations at the beginning um, when we were starting what do we want this thing to look like what are the things we don't want it to be and the Game development business is very hit driven. It's risky, um, but it's also an art form. And people are passionate about it and they're going to take those risks. Hopefully, the book gives people the tools to mitigate some of those risks. And um, because business isn't one of the primary focuses when you're in a game development program, um, and there's nobody out there really teaching it specifically for game developers, we wanted to give people the tools to have the foundational knowledge to ask important questions. Because we talk to a lot of people that tell us, well, I don't even know what questions I need to ask. Right. Giving, letting people know what they don't know and, and formulating that information, being able to formulate good questions for an accountant or good questions for an attorney. Just simply being aware of the aspects that influence the game development business outside of coding and art and sound and all those other things
0: yeah being an entrepreneurship major in college i kind of had to make a lot of guesswork in that way and i don't i don't know how much the uh you might touch on this in the book but like the startup world kind of doesn't know what to do with games i feel like in certain ways
1: it's true um and it depends on who you are and we don't talk about this i mean our assumptions in the book First of all, let me just say this. While the book is certainly geared for students and it's certainly geared for um, people who are starting out, we expect that there's going to be things in there for people who have been working in big studios who don't who might not necessarily understand some of the business stuff that swirls around them. Right. They might see the finance people bustling back and forth. Maybe they're on a completely different floor in a completely different building. But those things happen around game development all the time. But they might be obfuscated. We also expect that there's going to be information in there and stories in there that are going to be interesting and useful to people who love the medium, who might not ever want to build a game, who might not ever want to go into business um, for game development, but are curious about some of the things that influence their favorite hobby. And then finally, a lot of the principles that we cover, while certainly we have a video game focus, there are principles in there that are applicable to any number of businesses.
0: Right. Yeah, because for me, like when I would talk to like fellow students, like because I also have a computer science background, like I was able to talk on the aspect of like, all right, you understand software, and like a lot of startups, especially like student founded startups nowadays are software based because it's easy to get easier to get off the ground for those, mm-hmm. and so they would understand that, and then you'd be like, yeah, but like like you were saying, it's software, but it's an art, and then they may like go, what? I don't. Wait, it's not like an app or something. And yeah, I I. And and also what you're saying before about like people who are developers in bigger studios like touching on things that they would have no uh knowledge of just like you know a pnl or like a or any any sort of financial statement or also but like if you're in a bigger studio there would be things like burn rate that the studio wouldn't i would imagine bigger studios wouldn't wor- worry about because like sure. there's no burn rate for a large studio because you imagine that it's a a a profitable enough machine that it can sustain itself within a couple I mean, of years.
1: They, obviously, they do consider burn rate, um, and they for do like look projects at, and at their stuff. cash flow, right? For projects, and they yeah. look at and, and obviously, what, I mean, at that point, you're just you're calling it your cash flow. Yeah. Like, what's our what's our monthly outflow and what's our monthly inflow at that exactly? Point? Um, but it's something they do consider. But we talk about it in a way. I, I would say that that's a really good that's a really good point to bring up because the way we talk about things is we talk about things from people who are from the pr- perspective of people who are just starting up. And there might be people. We know there are people in large studios who want to break out on their own and have really great ideas. Um, and hope, hopefully, again, I I I speak really like I'm confident in a lot in, in the content we've put out there. But in terms of the impact and how people use it, my hope is that um, that people feel like if they decide to make that jump into independent development, that they feel armed with questions and armed with the potentials, the challenges, but also the benefits. And if people read this and decide like, okay, there's a lot more to this than I than I didn't realize. I'm, I was going to do it this year. Maybe I'm going to put it off a year or two because of financial considerations, because um, of where the project is, because of where they're living. I mean, any of these considerations that flow into all of the things that that, um, that make up these decisions, then hopefully we've saved somebody from making a, a decision that, that might adversely impact them in the short term, but could be good for them. And they might make that decision a little bit down the road and make, and it have a, a really, um, a really good decision.
0: Right. Like things like IP law.
1: I'm really proud of the legal stuff that's in the book, obviously. And we say this very clearly in the book. It's not legal advice. It's not legal advice. It <laughs> right. doesn't substitute for having your own counsel. Exactly. But we had five attorneys, one two, three, four, five attorneys contribute to it. We had three attorneys read the book prior to kind of locking down the content. We're really confident, and we cover the united states um I have a uh, you know an attorney we worked with for Europe who kind of guided us on some of those those big i p differences right very ten thousand foot at that point and this is this is again about getting your foot starting in the door, really understanding right starting questions um there is opportunity down the road to really dive into that and there are already there are some really good texts out there that focus exclusively on video game law and there are great resources out there um but knowing what it is that you need to worry about when you start up those are the things that surprise people every every day yeah. and when we see fan games pop up like we talk about fan games in the book I know. I know.
0: One of the, the attorneys you talked to was Ryan Morrison, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um. Yes. And I follow him on Twitter, and I know he's mm-hmm. very loud about you like. Should, f-
1: you should follow him on Twitter. In fact, <laughs> all of your listeners should file, should follow Mister Ryan Morrison, all one word on Twitter. He's uh he's great, and he speaks very um very bluntly about the risks of fan games. And one thing he says in the book is, "You can ruin your life. It can ruin your whole life. Right. He he was because you have no West protection." Panel. You have no protection, and um, he was on a PAX West panel, and one of the things that he and the other attorneys he was on the panel with, and this was about fair use and fan games came up, is that studios, companies, they don't need to send you a cease and desist. They can just sue you, and that's happening more and more, Um, and they don't have to sue you right away. They don't have to tell you to stop right away. They can wait. Like it wait till you start like getting a huge following exactly. or like
0: Yeah. Uh. And then
1: if and then if it's determined that you that that you profited there's an entitlement there if they're, if you're found to have been infringing. And then especially um,
0: if you don't have like any sort of, if you haven't established an LLC where like the, the assets are being put there, it's like, oh okay, all of a sudden it's considered like a sole proprietorship. And they could then exactly. For we cover assets. that in the
1: book too. Um, hey, so there we go. I, I, I mean, you're, you are, you're, you're, my, you're the best. Um, <laughs> so no, we, we, the way we approached the book, and this was another big conversation we had up front was how are we going to put, put this information together in a way that makes sense in terms of flow? Um, So we started with personal finance, and the reason we started with personal finance is that if you don't get your own house in order, then you're going to have a lot of trouble down the road. First of all, chances are you're going to need some savings if you're going to go into business for yourself. If you're going to start working full-time, building a game, and you don't have any other revenue coming in, or you have a diminished revenue coming in because you've decided to go part-time or – uh, contract out your contract out. If you're an artist, if you're uh, if you're a coder, if you want to contract out and do and do jobs like that to bring in a little bit of money, that's great. But it's not going to pay you the same as the full time job you're probably leaving. Or if you're a student, the full time job you might not be pursuing in order to do this. The other thing is when you when you start a business and you end up and you end up hiring people, you're responsible for their livelihoods. And I think uh, that gets lost in the concept stage of starting a business. Oh, I'm gonna have all these people work with me. Okay, but every time you bring somebody on, they are depending on you to make good business decisions. They're depending on you to have your finances in order for the business. They expect that you – they're going to be looking to you to know things. Um, and if you don't know those things, then maybe it's time to bring somebody else on who does know those things. We talk about when is the right time to hire a business manager, for instance, and how to find somebody and um, – one of uh, one of the, the people I interviewed Shamster Johnny from Paradox, uh, who is in Bizdev. Um, one of the things he talks about is um, that there's this misconception that business people are expensive, uh, that you can get coders and artists and people who are just starting out for relatively cheap to work on your game, but the business people are the ones that are going to cost you an arm and a leg. And that's not necessarily true, because and, and on people... either side. Right. Uh, you might not be able to get the artists you want for the money you think you're going to get. Yeah. Um, remember, people die of exposure, so <laughs> uh, you do need to pay people. We recommend you pay people. It's something that um, something as a company that that yeah. that Mike Bithell, who uh, Bithell Games is publishing this book. Mike Bithell and Alexander Slawinski, Alexander's his COO, um, chief operating officer, um, believe very strongly in. It's something that you know we see a lot in the in the industry where it's you know people need to get paid. Um, artists especially we see people like who offer up commissions on Twitter it's like oh well, wait you want me to pay for you to co- for this drawing it's like yes
0: uh yeah I mean be, I've I've seen that enough online but like even I'm gonna keep using anecdotes from school because that's like the like the only ones you're, I have of like nail- other entrepreneurship students
1: every, sing- every single one so far has um, been hit
0: but uh yeah I would I would have classmates and they're like like I said working on some sort of software startup for their project it'd be like oh we're gonna pay the developers x and I'm like, do you know, like starting out like a, a like junior developer makes like three X minimum yeah. of like what you're paying? Like, and I actually, cause I wrote a whole business plan for Ward, my game company. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of the things I covered was salaries, like bringing people on and it, yeah, I had, I had producers, business people, you know, biz dev developers, game designers, artists, but one of them I couldn't find was was writers because like there's no like mm. kind of stable, consistent like salaries for writers in game. So I went to film. I was like, all right, where are the salaries used in film? And I found some really good stats of like, all right, for like a low budget entry level like Hollywood film for a screenwriter, it's like it was like sixty five K or something. And
1: mm. then for like a big budget, like well-known writer, it's like
0: 110, 120K, something like that.
1: And one of the things we talk about because writing and music can be extremely expensive for games. We start talking about concepts like royalties and right. how to mitigate some of that A
0: rev share, things like that. Mm-hmm.
1: And we talk about that actually as an option for your early games. If you can't pay people up front and you've got people who believe in you, you should pay them something up front. Uh, Cause they, again, people die of exposure. They can't pay the rent with, with that credit at the, <laughs> at the end of the game. Um, but offering up, potentially some some points on the back end uh, revenue share as you said so there's there's a lot of options with which with which to view how to handle this and in fact depending on where you are in your in your life cycle there there are different ways that you're going to look at it so one of the things that we have in the book or will be will be available for people um, once the book is out is our digital supplements and one of them is a set of six spreadsheets Three of them are samples. Three of them are templates. Um, and the samples cover your first game, like when you're just starting out and you don't have any money coming in. One of them is you're, like, you've been a little bit successful. You have money coming in. Here's what that first budget might look like. And then the last one is you're pitching a publisher. You're going to get a publisher for the first time. Whether that's if you're very fortunate, like a large AAA publisher or one of the wonderful um, indie indie publishers, Those boutique publishers like Devolver Digital or Raw Fury uh, that have stepped up to really fill that market um, for really great indie games and curated, like having really curated portfolios. Um, So, those, you know, that is a force that we've only seen develop in the past five years, six years. Um, And Devolver was arguably the first that really made a go of publishing smaller games. Adult Swim Games is another one, and they're in, yeah. the, they're in the book as well.
0: Team 17 are like, people are referencing Team 17 more and more now, which is like surprising. I'm like, the Worms guys? The and Worms them- <laughs> guys,
1: exactly, right? Um, I think Curve is another one that's doing this. Uh, yeah. You know, we're seeing a lot of these small publishers pop up. Heck, Gearbox is doing it now. Mm-hmm. Telltale they're is double doing fine. it now. Double Fine is doing it now. So we're seeing more and more publishing opportunities because it almost goes to, if you remember EA Partners, Back in the day, they were leveraging mm-hmm. their existing relationships to publish third-party games. It's not exactly the same, of course. But when Devolver started popping up, um, and when you have companies like Gearbox and Telltale that have experience working with retail and, um, and understanding like how to get through um, FQA... Uh, and get the game out onto digital stores and the things that you should avoid or do absolutely do Uh limited run games is another one. Uh, Josh Fairhurst, uh, spoke to me for the book. Like he, talk, he talked to me about little things that, that can happen that you can do to make a game, like to speed a game through QA or really screw yourself up down the road. So having people who have those expertise and lever- leveraging that expertise, um, it, it's good for the industry.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I was at Super Smash Con a couple of weeks ago, which is like a, a Smash Brothers base fan mm-hmm. convention, which is like up near DC, which is really weird. You wouldn't expect all these people to come to DC to see that, but they had the uh, the community manager for Rivals of Ether was there, you know, mm. one of the other like Party Brawler yep. games, and they were doing a panel, and he was talking about how many times they had to go through QA for 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 yeah for Microsoft uh, or, so or cert. CERT yeah sir basically
1: there's different names and uh and nintendo calls it lot check so right. you've got like different names <laughs> so when we wrote it, so we had like we tackled this in the book again another like funny like how the sausage is made story it's like okay we know what it's called for all these how the heck are we going to refer to it in the book that doesn't right. lean towards one of them but gets the point across we think we just ended up calling it certification or final certification or well something yeah like i thought
0: that. that that was what the agreed upon term was uh i didn't know that was like more of a microsoft led yeah term. so
1: sony calls it fqa okay and nintendo calls it lot check so it's different depending on the that one's kind of cool it's
0: like i'm going to lot check it's like yeah. i'm driving a bus
1: let's go to lot check park or, it up for the night or most of the time it's like oh god we're going through fqa <laughs> please don't bounce it back because yeah. it could take a month and if you got to go through it again especially during a busy period that's another month or more and that can really screw up your release
0: right well what's nice now is that at least for like i, I don't know about the pricing structure for like cert right now but i know for like patches like post-release patches i think they've either stopped charging or like charged significantly less than they used to previous generation
1: yeah so this is me putting the journalist hat back on for a little bit i remember reporting on that because that was the big thing with with microsoft on the 360 last gen yeah. i think you got your first patch free or your first title update free and then after that i it's like it's-
0: it was like sixty it, grand or something, wasn't it? It was like I something. I don't
1: know if it was that high. I think I remembered hearing ten. I, th- okay. I, I, I actually, if I, I know, it was to, five figures. If I had to recall, if I have to recall, I think it might have even been Tim Schafer who went on the record with how much money that was. I'd have to find it. I think it was Tim, maybe, but that's that's what right. sticks out in my head. But they did get rid of it. Uh, i don't think anyone's gonna burn a
0: bridge with Tim over that. They're just gonna be like, oh, it's Tim. Okay,
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll let you have uh, that one." I, I think, I'm pretty sure it was him. If, and hopefully, if I'm wrong, my apologies to Tim and to whomever <laughs> actually did say it. I will look it up after we're off the phone. And you know, if I screwed it up, I'll right. do a mea culpa what? when, and, when and, this goes and, live.
0: <laughs> well, I know uh, uh, Polytron Phil Fish had something to say mm-hmm. about it when because Fez had that big save. Oh, bug. and you know
1: what? And maybe it was Phil. Okay. Maybe it was Phil. Um, and that's where that's where it came out. So it, so maybe it was Tim too. Maybe maybe it was everybody. We'll just say it was everybody. Everybody said it at the same time
0: something i want to go back to what you talking about because you were talking about publishers and like kind of when you get the chance to like work with a publisher for Mm -hmm. your game and i kind of want to talk to you more about just external funding in general sure because um as 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 a business student i kind of geek out at the fact that campo santo went to panic for Mm. their publishing i just thought that was like oh that's so smart like there are all these other software developers that aren't concerned about games that have plenty of money that you could just talk to them instead of talking to a publisher. Mm-hmm. And I thought like that's that, that was such a smart way to go about it instead of like going through the traditional channels. And I'm sure they did that too, but like to, to go with panic for whatever reason, where it was a good business relationship or whatever, it seemed it, it, it helped like expand things out a little bit. I felt mm-hmm. like
1: I, I think what ends up being, you know, I, yes, absolutely. I think non-traditional publishing routes and investment routes are really cool. Um, they tap money that, isn't being dedicated to the industry already helps grow the industry um they're cool stories i mean i I, still former journalist here i I love cool stories about how people manage their business when it's successful and i also love cool stories where people can reflect on things that didn't go as well which we do have a few of those in the book um because i think those are important one of the things that i i question and i haven't talked to um The folks at campus santo about this but i'm curious if they ran into any um into ran into any challenges by having a publisher who was like did they understand video game like milestones in terms of video games Mm -hmm. did did they need education in terms of did they have to start at the start at kind of not you know point zero because these are these are software people right um but they start or you start somewhere or somebody understands publishing in general and you understand, you have to then explain like, well, here's how it works for video games. And then here's how it works. And you have like all these different first parties that handle things differently and that you have to do differently. And, you know, so here's what the timing looks like. So I'm wondering how much education needed to happen there right. Um and how much of a trade-off that was. And maybe it was not, maybe it was very easy. Maybe the relationship was so good and the trust was, was there that it was, that it was super easy. But I think that, as an example, when we talk about we talk about working with licensed properties in the book, because that's coming back in a way we've kind of washed that like the badness of of licensed games away from yeah, the la- like tier games. Ago. Yeah. And, right. And now people are kind of coming back slowly to the licensed games and they're and they're not bad. And I think in some ways, WB and Rocksteady opened the door for some of that, even though it's their own property, like Batman did really well. And now we have Shadow and um, Mordor. Shadow of Mortar is a really good one, and Spider-Man's coming out, and you have this—you have a lot of excitement for licensed properties. The, the Dragon Ball Fighter that Bandai Namco is putting out is getting huge previews. So we're seeing people return very slowly to licensed games, but also we're seeing smaller developers having an in in a way they might not have before
0: uh, through those licensed games. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like you know THQ made its resurrection, so licensed games have to come back too. I feel like I feel like they're, yeah. they're just
1: eternally tied a, together. And that's a cool story too, because I. Before I was at Game Informer, I was with this, at a site called RIP10, and I had an opportunity to interview Danny Bilson, and it was right after their last NASDAQ warning. Um, when they So the way that works is if your share price slips under a dollar for a certain amount of time, you get a warning. You have, oh, I can't remember if it's 90 days or six months, to bring that up to above a dollar on average –
0: for like ten consecutive business days. Can can you like just bring it back up with a reverse stock split? Can you oh just- <laughs>
1: god. Okay. So that's how THQ did it. Okay. So, that's, I'm trying to remember if that that was the if they pulled that or not. Oh no. So this is. I'm, oh man. I'm really glad we're having this conversation. So the problem with the reverse stock split. So the concept behind a stock split in general is that um, you're creating additional share value. It's it's the the. The non-financial piece of it, the 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 emotional piece of it, is my company. The company I've invested in is doing really well, and the stock price is getting really high, and it's really hard to like buy shares of that company. So we're gonna split the split the price. So I worked at I worked in the mailroom at Lucent Technologies, back in the summer of '97 was my first year because it was my my summer after my freshman year in, in college, and their stock price hit 100, and then they split. And of course, then the stock starts going up again. So all those people who then had two share, two share, two fifty dollars shares for every hundred dollars share they had before, start seeing that value go up and up and up and up and up and and up again. The reverse stock split does the opposite. It is a bad sign to investors, um, and you have to over over reverse split. So if you were just do just enough. To get that share price above a dollar, it would sink again because of the
0: the message. That right, sent. because people would start offloading their their shares.
1: Exactly. Um, plus, you your investors lose fractional shares. So if they have anything left over, so let's say they had five shares after this you know, left over after the split, and because theirs was a six to one or one to six, I think. Oof. So if, yeah, it was a rough, <laughs> rough reverse split, and exactly what happened. They they did it, and then it started sinking again, and then it was just, it was just the end. Um, And then covering kind of the after effect of that story, it was – the major sell-off happened in January of 2013. I started at GI in April of 2013. Shortly after that, Nordic made its big push. And at that time, uh, they did not want to get into development. They were strictly about publishing. Their philosophy has obviously changed. And now they're doing more. Obviously, Darksiders 3 is coming out. They just announced Biomutant. Um, there's a I, couple of other things that they're doing. that's just I need really fantastic. my
0: new Red Faction. Where is it? Give me the new Red Faction. Where is the IP? Where is it going? Where is um, it? I, I need it so bad. The, I think they have. The I think IP Nordic has it. Because who Silver, else bought it? Yeah, Deep, well, Deep Silver. Silver
1: bought a bu- bought a bunch of stuff. They bought, um, and then Crytek also, you know, ended up buying Homefront, and then Deep Silver ended up buying that from, uh, from Crytek. And there was something else. So Vigil, because they had just released Darksiders 2, they didn't have a project in development and THQ, because Jason Rubin, who's now at Oculus, okay, um, yeah. is the head of publishing there. Uh, it was uh, with CEO, the CEO, right? He was CEO of THQ when when they went over, but he but you know, they tried to save Vigil, but they didn't have a game for the for enough in development that they they could sell off. So Vigil split David Adams, who was involved with darksiders 2 i want to say he was the project lead on that i if not then he was someone very close to the top of that um and maybe the studio head um he and joe mad like joe mad obviously went off and did battle chasers which thq nordic is publishing (laughs) um and then david started gunfire games worked with oculus and gunfire i believe is working on darksiders 3
0: okay all right
1: so if this is all i'm doing this all from memory so
0: right. so so there is a little vigil dna in dark Starers a 3. lot i would say okay. a lot
1: and and i don't think if i recall joe mad isn't doing the art but they've but i've seen the game i've seen the trailers and everything and it looks like they're doing a really good job of emulating his art style
0: where where's volition right now Are volition they...
1: is owned by deep silver they just released ages okay. of mayhem
0: right okay yeah i know i know they just released ages of mayhem but they also did uh uh, Saints Row. Re, re, yeah, they also did Saints Row, but they also did Red Faction, or at least uh, Gorilla I think.
1: Uh, I'm gonna look that up right now. I think you're right.
0: Because in my head, it's I know it starts with a V, so it's either Volition or Visceral, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't Visceral.
1: It wasn't Visceral. Visceral did uh, Dead Space. did Dead Space. Yeah. Do, do 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 Google do the thing.
0: Fact check this.
1: Love do we fact know we're checking? Stuff. Red Faction, Deep Silver, Volition uh yeah yes 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 I, so maybe yeah. deep,
0: deep silver does have the red faction ip I don't know.
1: um i don't know because they bought the it, the ips in the studios went in different directions yeah yeah um i don't know that they did but well I could at be the very least they that. have
0: that geomod tech so maybe i don't know to <laughs> do, do red faction without calling it red faction i wanted to ask also what made you want to write this book because um, obviously you know a lot about business. I think in your background, you talk you you did a lot with like nonprofits and and things I like did. that in the past. Um,
1: you know, my my background before getting into into journalism was working as a development officer and a grant maker in nonprofit arts. And I also did organizational management. I did our like I I ended up having to take over and do the finance for the arts council I was working on in Rochester, New York, or working for in Rochester, Rochester, New York. So I it's just my last job was at Lincoln Center and it was, you know, a huge organization and um I didn't want to raise money anymore, not that way anyway. Um so I decided to to make to make the shift, but for this it was um you know, Left Game Informer and Alexander and I had been talking about you know we wanted to work together and how that what that looked like and we had a couple of suggestions or thoughts and some of those still might come to pass in different ways so I'm not going to spill the beans on them. Um, but we decided like we had both looked around and said you know there's not anything like this out there and um, he and Mike Bithel had um, had the interest in giving back to the community. In fact, the company the the company ethos is giving back to the indie community. And this was a way that um, that Mike and Alexander could make a decision to fund something that would ultimately help developers who were coming up, um, whether they were just out of school or had made a career change and decided to uh, decided to enter the um, decided to enter the field. And I'm just extreme, I'm extremely grateful that we were able to make this work. I'm excited. Uh, I can't wait for people to read it. Um, the the feedback we've gotten so far is enormous and positive, and I, I'm i excited for people to actually get it in their hands and engage in conversations uh, and have those discussions. That's awesome. Uh, um, and somebody asked me, and this is an important point, like, well, you talk to, like, 26 or 27 different people. Obviously, like, what happened when people contradicted themselves? What What did you do? And I welcomed it. I welcomed it because we
0: we saw who made the most gross revenue, and then we just took that response, and that (laughs) was the right one. We flipped a
1: coin. Uh, No, we we actually include different perspectives, and the reason for that is there are there's no one right way. There's a lot of right ways. There's a lot of wrong ways. Um, Hopefully, we can steer you away from some of the ways we know are problematic, and steer you towards one of the paths that's the best fit. The way you do business, the way you build games, the way you approach your work, the way you approach employees and managing teams. That's going to vary from person to person. And in combination, there's there's multiple different factors that go into how you end up building your business. We want to give you the tools to know what those possible possibilities are. We don't have all of them, obviously, but we have a lot of success models in there, um, people who have found really good success, but also those same people who share with us where things went a little wrong and, and where their challenges were. I really love there's a conversation in there. Uh, with Nina Christensen from Ninja Theory, and they just released Hellblade. Um, and she talks about what life was like after her group of co-founders, which was three people, left. Uh, Argonaut was the, was the company they were with before. Argonaut folded. They wanted to keep working on the things they were working on. And they founded their own studio, Ninja Theory. And there were some challenges involved in that. And in the book, she talks very bluntly about some of the risks that she and her and her co-founders took in building that studio,
0: yeah, and I feel like with it's easier to take those risks, you know, since she had experience from from before going in into Ninja Theory, which their first game was Heavenly Sword, right?
1: Um, that was their previous game. I can't remember if it was the first game under Ninja Theory or if there was another game before that under Ninja Theory. Uh, but again, they had been working on. I think they had started working on that. I think you're right. I think they started working at that game. On that game at Arcanaut, and then kind of transitioned it over to Ninja Theory.
0: But you are seeing like a lot of like, there's some calculated risk involved there, and you see in but with like trusted knowledge with people that have been in in the industry, and you see that a lot with things like like Kickstarter's with uh mm-hmm. you know the creator of of, of Castlevania, the creator of, of Mega Man, like going off and doing their own things and when to make spiritual successors mm-hmm. and then receiving funding, and mm-hmm. it's sometimes not going so well in the case of my Number Nine. But mm-hmm. uh, it's um. I, th- I think sometimes people lose sight of that, um, especially when they're starting out and have no previous experience or expertise, like they have a lot of assumptions. I have a lot of assumptions of like how I think a business should be run or like, you know, what my product should be like. But, you know, until I get to test those in practice, you know, for for better or for worse, people aren't really going to give you the time of day in, in most circumstances, you know, mm-hmm. in, in terms of like maybe a publisher or maybe like a, uh, other developers that you might want to bring on for you know for experience or, or things like that or for mm-hmm. to help you make the product and i think that's a good lesson to have in there to say like all right this is when you should be making calculated risks and these mm-hmm. should be how you should be making that calculated risk so you know and when to be risk averse and when not to be risk averse because i mean that's that's stuff I've, I've i've learned along the way it's like when it's important to like put yourself out there and like be a little more risk-taking whereas you know be a little bit more reserved mm-hmm.
1: And also, I think there's a lot of those startup considerations. Like, obviously, we have people like Nina and Ron Gilbert and uh, Jordan Weissman featured in the book. But also, I talked to Phil Tibetowski from Young Horses. They um, They have a fascinating story about decisions they made early on that were really good for Octodad and the way they handled Octodad and where they ran into some challenges with how they handled that because there were, I believe, 18 people. Who were involved in the making of that game, and obviously when the studio was founded, there weren't all of those people involved. Um, talked to Tom Eastman from Trinket; they're working on Battle Chef Brigade, um, and uh, also talked to Steve G from Adult Swim Games, who's publishing their game, about how that relationship came together. Uh, Davey Reiden, uh talked to me about kind of the the challenges that that he's run into and and his search for a business manager and finding that that right fit. And Davy and I had talked on the phone prior to our interview um, about some of the things that he was looking for. So, I mean, the the there's a I, I'd like to, I I believe there's a great breadth of people um, who are um, who are featured in the book. People who have just been through the startup period. People who are still going through their first major game with a publisher. To all people who are elder statesmen. Brenda Romero was was really kind to talk to me about um, her perspectives on hiring and how she manages that. So it's just been, I mean, it's been a really cool process and I think we were very fortunate and I'm grateful to every single person who agreed to talk to me, whether it was in person or over Skype by email, you know, to, to get this put together.
0: Yeah, that, that does sound awesome. And I mean, and something I try to do as well for like the podcast, like, cause you know, I also have kind of like, like you and Alexander kind of had, I kind of had like, well, there's not a lot of resources or like. You know, it's it's one thing to hear um, someone give like a post-mortem and be like, here were my experiences after the fact, after I after mm-hmm. everything was said and done. Whereas with me, I both want to bring professionals on that that know their stuff, but also kind of be a chronicle of what I'm doing right now. It's like, all right, here we are. It's like, this is where we are in the process. And for anyone that would have any assumptions of like, oh, I can get a game out in six months or a year or whatever. Like, okay, if you listen to the podcast, you could see the mm-hmm. kind of the progression of development in a certain way it's not what we always focus on but it's it's it. i think having kind of like an almost like live in the process kind of thing also helps with with that Mm -hmm. and people understand that absolutely so hopefully like maybe somewhere i'll I'll be somewhere to be able to speak from experience where where that's like all right if you watch this entire process you can understand how uh what it takes to get through all this
1: absolutely like i'm i'm excited and and i hope we have the opportunity to do more things like this. Yeah. Um, I think there's so much, there's so much more to, to discuss that um, I'm real, as I said, I'm really excited for the conversations that are going to happen when we, uh, when we put this out, which will be, we are we're saying in October and I am confident that, that we're going to hit that for digital and then it'll be hardcover before the end of the year.
0: Right. Yeah. I saw, I saw Mike Bithell tweeting about writing uh, his foreword for the book. Mm hmm. Which and is Ram- really
1: great and very touching, and I'm excited
0: for it. And then Rami was like, you spelled forward wrong. <laughs>
1: <saying>. <laughs> I, 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 we already took care of that. It's all good. All right, good. And, good, of, course, it and of course, Rami was the one who jumped at him and poked <laughs> at him about it. The two of them have an amazing relationship, and it's fun to watch.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, both of them are awesome to just watch and have them. They're, they're so awesome about reaching out to people and being mm-hmm. honest and, and talking about their experiences and even doing stuff like... Oh, I forget which they went to some conference in Eastern Europe and just gave a bunch of shit to the G2A guy during his panel. And I was like, all mm-hmm. right, yeah, like mm-hmm. you are, you guys are interested in the, in the health of, of indie development mm-hmm. for the long and, term.
1: And Rami, man, he, uh, there's a number of places where he shows up in the book as I'm sure you're, I'm sure you're shocked. Um, <laughs> but no, what? It was, it, you know, it's it, talking to Rami is always so inspirational and, um, he really wants, just as you said, both Mike and Rami have an interest in seeing this industry grow, and the people who enter this industry do well and have the tools that they need. Um, but Rami, you know, he talked to me through, like in detail, how Vlambeer handled Nuclear Thrones early access process, and what he would do differently, and what he loved about it, and you know, there was, he told he told stories about like just what went right and just where he'd make those those tweaks and what the decisions they made did had an impact, how the decisions they made had an impact on the people who were working on the game and the community that was playing the game in early access. And this cool ecosystem that developed a, during that, that process.
0: Yeah, I think um, I remember like when it was in early access, he was leveraging Twitch a lot for like live streaming development. Mm-hmm. And I think he was getting feedback like that. And I think someone once asked him like... Uh he was complaining about like the bullets uh and like the way they shot and like I-, I don't know like bullet drop or something and someone was like well why don't you just edit the physics engine he's like there's no physics engine <laughs> and, yeah <laughs> then, like I'm I'm like hand editing how the the logic of these bullets and how they fly <laughs> and I always and thought that was, a, that was a cool <sighs> way to like engage with people as well and like building building that community early mm-hmm because obviously, like I, I respect and follow Rami because you know I'm an aspiring developer, but it's hard to think of it from the perspective of someone who's just loves Vlambeer games.
1: Yeah, and like I, I'm so grateful for. I mean, he he provided an amazing testimonial for the book, and I just not only grateful for for his time, but he read the book before, you know, we locked down the content, provided feedback. And you know, and then provided that testimonial and it's it's the kind it's those kind of things where people were kind enough to spend their time not just not just talking to me for the interview, but to really invest in this process that I'm so grateful. Yeah. Um
0: something other another thing that was interesting that you kind of brought up because you were talking about, you know, you obviously published the book through uh Bithel Games mm-hmm. and um but also you you did a lot of communication with both Mike Bithel and uh Alexander Mm -hmm. Um, and I know Alexander used to work at joystick. So I don't know if that's like when your relationship started, like when you started knowing each other, when you both were writers,
1: my relationship with Alexander actually started, I was scared. I'm going to go with, i (laughs) was scared. Uh, I had actually, we had published that on rip 10. We published the Danny Bilson interview when I asked him about like reverse stock splits. And, And by the way, at that point they were like, no, no, we have other ways to deal with this other than a reverse stock split. It's not what happened, obviously. Um, <laughs> None of them were I, good. This was the best one. But, you know, it also they had they had announced a release date for Darksiders 2. And I asked them, like, is that on track? Because that would have been the only game that released during that their period, uh, their warning period, that might have, like, inflated the stock value. Uh-huh. And they said, well, we didn't announce a release date for that game. I'm like, but I have a press release here from you that announced a release date for this game. I think it was April something no that's not true i'm like okay so what you're telling me is the game is delayed (laughs) uh so there were of course like that got picked up on by a lot of major sites uh jim riley when he was at um a game informer picked it up and alexander picked it up and i get this dm on twitter it's like um do you have time to talk it's like uh yes and he pick up the phone. He calls me. I pick up the phone. And and I'm like, hi. He's like, hi, this is Alexander Slowinski from Joystick. And I'm like, oh, hi. Uh, Nice to hear from you. He's like, so who the hell are you? (laughs) And I'm like, oh, what did I do? I'm like, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? Did I screw this up? Did I really blow it? And he's like, no, you didn't. You did a really great job and nobody knows who the heck you are. So I'm trying to figure out like, who are you? So I gave him my whole story like I've got an MBA I've got you know my previous life was in finance and in business and Like really had to know like how nonprofit organizations worked, like from top to bottom and what their budget should look like and he's like, oh, okay um, <laughs> Cool, cool. And then right. and then he and I stayed in touch sweet uh, and we we uh, so what most people didn't see never saw knew about through some tweets, but whenever there was an earnings call like it would be like did i just hear that right did they just say what i think they said and like and it would be like it was nice to have that double check before the seeking alpha transcript went up mm-hmm. to be like are we understanding that correctly <laughs> so it was it was interesting to um to have someone who I could talk to about the business aspect. Right. So, things. so
0: Alexander's been interested in that stuff for a while. Cause I think it's interesting. Like you both kind of had this both in journalism and then both became like much more shit in, in biz dev mm-hmm. and games uh, with Alexander as CEO of, of Bithel games. And you writing this book.
1: Mm-hmm. It's um, it, it was, it's a good match. Like we had talked for a number of, we had talked for a while, a number of years about how we were going to work together. We wanted to do a podcast about business. We were both still on, on the other side. Um, you know, were there things that we could do to, to really lift the level of discourse? And I think both of our focus, if you look at the, the stuff that I wrote when, when I was at GI and the stuff that Alexander wrote when he was a joystick, both of us really take the explainer approach um, very seriously um, and really di- making complex stories digestible for Average readers who might not have that foundational level of business. And in some ways, this book is a book length explainer about how indie business works.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I love I love seeing when when journalists do tech let stuff, both on the biz dev side, but also on like engineering, whether it's software engineering or hardware engineering, because I know. When the Xbox One X was still Project Scorpio got announced, I think uh Justin McElroy did a huge explainer about what's a teraflop
1: yeah, on, right? on Polygon.
0: <laughs> and I was like, Yeah, that's I have a degree in computer science, and I still don't really understand what a teraflop is. So this it, is probably
1: <laughs> It's great for T shirts. Yeah. You're like, put how many teraflops you have on a T shirt and everybody's everybody's like, Oh, that's a lot of teraflops, I think. It's like a it's like a parsec, right? It's like- yeah.
0: Yeah, the ship can do it in 12 teraflops.
1: Oh, well, that's probably about as accurate as saying it can do it in 12 parsecs <laughs> and making it seem like the parsec is a unit of time. Not a unit of distance. Uh, I mean, maybe Han took a shortcut. I don't know.
0: <laughs> but you also told me, you have a story about, um, I don't know if we've kind of already covered it in like several different ways here, but about why... Bithell Games is publishing the book.
1: Sure. I, again, a lot of this comes back to the company's philosophy and Mike and Alexander's philosophy of giving back to the community. Um, there, were Mike tells the story in his own way in the forward for the book, and I don't want to spoil that. But from my perspective, one of the things that um, that made me really excited for this project is it comes from a place of altruism. Uh, it comes from a place where um this isn't about so often you know you hear like oh pull yourself up by your bootstraps and the independent game development community is not like that there is a lot of a lot of helping that goes on behind the scenes um and this was a way that that mike and alexander could do that for the community and create something that had some lasting impact we believe um and and Do some good and if we can help people make smarter business decisions or ask the questions that lead them to better decisions for them then great Um, we're not going to make anybody rich as i said at the beginning this isn't a get rich quick book but um if we can help people protect themselves go in with their eyes open and have the foundation to build their own success which is a process and it's not a straight line there's going there are ups and downs along the way then i think we've succeeded and i i look forward to engaging in those conversations with people and i hope people will talk to us if there are things in you know things they find that they have questions about i don't i'm, I'm fairly open i love having those conversations and mm-hmm. um delighted to start engaging in them in different ways with people
0: i feel like this is an example of one of them because oh, you know
1: <laughs>
0: I've, I've, I've talk, yeah, I've talked to a lot of of indie devs who you know, I've just reached out to them an email or on Twitter just like, hey, do you want to come on a podcast and talk about indie game dev and talk about like your experiences with it? and you know, I've had a lot of indie devs come on here and also people in biz dev or talking about games in biz dev um, just just be willing to to share their time with me and be able to talk about their experiences and I think it's it's a super valuable resource. So yeah, like you were saying, it's like, there's no, there's no like, I mean, there's competitiveness uh, to a little bit, like maybe just some fun rivalries, but there's no like, trade secrets. These are all mine. Mm -hmm. I ain't sharing them. Get bent, go find someone else to talk to.
1: And I think that, and, and this is one of the things that I'm really excited about the book and our epilogue, our last chapters, every single person I interviewed, I said, all right, look, if you had one piece of advice for people, for starting out, what would it be? No, no specific topic. No, no, no right or wrong answer. What would that? What would that thing be? And I got wildly different answers on wildly different topics. And I want to say that Nina Christensen again said that similar thing is that this concept of rivalries and and um and a zero sum game doesn't exist. That we can all help lift each other up. Mm-hmm. And that's wow. important. That's an important part of the independent game development community.
0: Awesome. I just wanted to quickly talk about pax west since you went oh over yeah there. let's
1: talk about pax west for a few minutes totally. sweet
0: yeah so tell me about pax west because i've only ever been the east i've been the east twice now um past two years but okay. i've never been to the prime
1: the prime which it isn't called anymore which it will always be prime in my heart <laughs> um i absolutely love seattle i love that that area of downtown where where the washington state convention center is um unlike pax east which is all on that one floor and then you've got conference rooms kind of all of them are like right there yeah um PAX West is a little bit decentralized. Um, in fact, there's the show floor, which is all where all your AAAs are, Indie Mega Booth, uh, some vendors. The sixth floor used to be a trudge. Like You used to have to go up there, and it's like, oh, they're all on the sixth floor. Now you go up on the sixth floor, you've got the Diversity Lounge, which is always wonderful. You've got really great indies up there. Like, uh, so Rami was up there this year. Was that the um, playground thing? That was. And yeah. it was really cool. Um you've got um Rough Fury was up there. Uh where the water tastes like wine. It was there. And these were like so, like salt, like actual, like real booths up there. And of course, you got like the best, the best, like not the best vendors, but you. So you've got the sky. (laughs) The best vendors. I'm not. I'm not trying to be like. So the sky bridge is always still really good. So there's uh, that connects the two halves of the of the main floor on the third floor. Then you actually have their number. Like we love fine was up there, and loot crate was up there, and Jinx was downstairs on the main floor. So some of them have so some of them have booths on the main floor, but, uh, but the sixth floor was like really great this year. It was like, it was like indie heaven up there. Um, so I'm really glad to see like, there's not this like quality dichotomy anymore between the main floor and the sixth floor. And then you've got theaters for panels that are in a number of the hotels around. So it's way more decentralized. There's a lot of walking, which I, I enjoyed. And, um, uh, it was really. Good. It wasn't as packed as East. East this year, I thought was was too full.
0: I saw photographs of PAX
1: West, and I'm like, there's like this is Friday or Saturday. Like there's like space between booths you can, that you can and, walk. Like and, what's going on? And most of the years at East, it's it's like that. It's not overcrowded. It's always crowded, but it's not. over man, East this year, I felt like Gamescom. Like it was that crowded. I know. I, I know that's an exaggeration. And I know that if I were back in the public halls of Gamescom like back to back <laughs> I would probably laugh at myself but Pax East felt way more crowded this year I know they added a fourth day for for next year on Thursday yeah. I think it is oh I um, thought it was Monday oh is it Monday
0: I that was it Monday for West or was it Thursday
1: it's always Monday for West because it's Labor Day and um, also there's
0: there's Pax Dev that comes right before it
1: right Pax Dev comes right I don't I need to double check to see what day they added East Thursday makes more sense to me than Monday because I don't I, I can't imagine just taking off a regular Monday for for PAX, I mean, people will do it, but mm-hmm. it's just journalists I would be surprised if they stay for right. the for day four, if day four is Monday. If it's if day four is Sunday, then you'll see journalists staying maybe maybe yeah, probably all four days. Um, but hopefully that alleviates some of the congestion because PAX East was a little too crowded this year. I loved West. Um I was on a couple panels. Um I sat in on a couple of panels. Ryan had a really good panel with a number of attorneys about fair use. Um a concept we cover very explicitly in the book and how fair use is determined and why it is not a not the defense you necessarily want to use. Uh what it isn't because a lot of people think that fair use is just like, oh, well oh, it's just fair use. It's parody. It's like that word doesn't mean <laughs> what you think it means. Yeah. Stop using it before a lawyer knocks on your door with a summons or something. Um mm-hmm. you don't want to get it, you don't want to be sued. Um
0: did you see these bathrooms with these decals on them? Did you see this picture going around at PAX no. West? Which picture? Oh, no. Uh, it's, uh... So, it might have been... It wasn't the stupid it, carrot, was it? I saw it the It was carrot. the stupid carrot. It was the <laughs> carrot that said, drop your carrots here.
1: Oh, oh. Yeah, so this is for some game called Shadowverse. I don't know much about it. At, at a glance, it looked like a CCG, a digital CCG. It was like a mobile game, right? Uh, probably, if okay. my guess... um. Although digital CCGs this day this, this day in this day and age you can play on either yeah. you got I don't know that big one called Hearthstone, um, <laughs> and then Wizards of the Coast is like hey maybe we should do a better Magic online and they announced that yesterday which I'm super excited for my wallet is not though um, <laughs> I love Magic the Gathering I haven't played in a long time and I'm really really excited that that Wizards is going to get more of my money. Uh, but yeah, PAX West was, was really good. I, I, I do love the layout. There is a lot more walking. Like one of our panels was down in the Westin, which is like a five minute walk away from the convention center. Right. But you want to take it slow. So you're not starting your panel like sweaty. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. That's not fun. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was great. I'm, I always love going. Um, I made a point this year. I, I went and I, and if I, I think I saw everybody at the show who was in the book who was featured in the book. If I oh, missed sweet. if I missed I made sure like I needed to go and talk to them. I handed them cards, like told them I you know I went and I saw Ron Gilbert and you know make sure he had cards. And if I missed you, if you were listening to this show and you were at PAX East and I interviewed for the, you for the book and I didn't see you, I'm really really sorry. Um the only person I went by our Armel, uh, the Armello booth cuz they have an iOS version coming out. Um I went to go see Trent Custers who I absolutely love if you want to know about crowdfunding our chapter on crowdfunding in the book trent is a superstar um man i that i went and i actually did some research so a spoiler here for this chapter trent told me about some really cool things like how they prepared for their kickstarter and i went and i did some research to see what their results were and compared them to other like in terms of how much money they got per backer and compared to how much they got and how much each Uh, the base tier was that included a game holy crap league of geeks trent custers knows what he's doing so if you are interested in crowdfunding i promise you there is something for you in the book about crowdfunding
0: that's pretty cool that's awesome and that's awesome that like you were able to say hi to them all at uh except for trent who i missed because he wasn't at the
1: booth like the three or four times i went by so it's his fault no No, it's not uh, his fault no trent (laughs) no trent i love you it is not your fault i it's my fault for not like camping out at your booth and uh, I can't wait to put the book in your hand, Trent. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I got I got a lot of uh, uh envy, like when people were like super excited about PAX West because you know I went to East I had a blast but then mm-hmm. I was like all right well I'm just gonna miss West this year and then maybe next year I'm I'm gonna go to it or maybe I'll like try to hit all three because um, someone asked me if I wanted to go to PAX South with them but uh, I was like man now I really wish I went to PAX West because like between like the playground thing that Vlambeer mm-hmm. and Finji and all them were doing and all this other stuff feel like I missed out.
1: Well, South is a super chill experience because, I mean, I, I was surprised at how... I don't want to say empty. The word is not empty, but how much room you had to walk around it at South.
0: Well, I just love San Antonio. I love San yep. Antonio, the city. Like, I love the Riverwalk. I love everything about San Antonio.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was my first time there for South this year, and I was I was really impressed.
0: Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much. Thank I you. I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope I hope people... Are excited about the book. I am.
1: Thank you. I was excited
0: to talk to geek out with
1: someone about business stuff <laughs> <I> <laughs> for hope I, a little bit. I, I hope I met your expectations. I hope I fulfilled oh, your, your wildest dreams about of course, geek of out. course. Because man, I love geeking out about business too.
0: Oh yeah, thanks, Mike.
1: Thank you very much, Dylan.